We are going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, especially verse 19. So if you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to start in, I'll start, start in verse 18 again. Ephesians 5, 18, and I'm going to read through 21. Morning. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 5, we've been going through this, we have what's sometimes called a paranesis. A paranesis is a section in the New Testament epistles that contains a lot of moral exhortations, uh, a lot of contrast between moral virtues and vices. All right, and Paul's, a lot of Paul's writing contains this contrast between living in the light and living in the darkness. And that's really a biblical paradigm that, that we should think about, that we live in, this contrast between darkness and light. And the other thing, too, I've mentioned is sometimes, uh, you know, in an effort to highlight the fact that salvation is by grace, not works, to which I say amen, mm-hmm. it is. But sometimes people kind of disregard the fact that the Bible is a treasure of moral instruction and commandments. And it certainly is. The Bible's not merely... Uh, a book of rules to follow, but it's not less than that. Right? The Bible contains instructions for moral living and also vices to avoid. So the Christian, as we've talked about, desires to know the way in which he is to walk, which is why the psalmist sang right, in Psalm 86, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. So as we've worked through... Um, Ephesians 5, this paranesis, this list of moral instruction and vices to avoid. We've heard commandments instruction regarding speech, sexual morality, exposing darkness, walking in wisdom. Right? We've considered the charge that Paul gave to the saints at Ephesus to live differently from the pagan culture as it relates to um, drunkenness and being given to excess. And this contrast continues in verse 19 where Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So we'll talk about how that's a contrast to some of the things that were occurring uh, in Ephesus. So this piece of moral instruction, again, I'm focusing mainly on verse 19 today, is uh, this is pure gold, right? This is something to delight in above fine gold, all right? This is a commandment from the Lord, a precept that we can find delight in. So today what I want to do, and again, stop me at any point, you have questions, comments, disagreements, anything you want to interject, but I want to look at this exhortation to the saints in Ephesus, especially verse uh, 19, excuse me, uh, by looking at four things regarding singing. It's necessity, it's history, it's didactic nature, and it's teleology. All right, we'll talk about those things as we go, Okay. Along the way, I'll make some points of application, but I can really only scratch the surface with this. Um, I, I did a lot of research on this and, and had a lot written, and then I kind of had to scrap it all because I was getting way too deep into the history of this and, and the, some of the debates in church history. So I'll probably have something online within a week or so. If you want to read that, let me know. But um, I'm going to try to do an introduction here to some of these, some of these themes. All right, so number one, let's consider the necessity of singing. Alright, Paul's charge to the saints in Ephesus is to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, alright? This comes right after his exhortation to be filled with the Spirit. Right after his exhortation to be filled with the Spirit rather than to be drunk with, with wine. So, put yourself in the context of these Ephesians, right? All around them in the first century, uh, people are gathering together practicing their pagan religious services. And singing was actually a common place thing at these Greek banquets, at these um, religious festivals among the the non-Christians. In fact, the Greeks had a god called Dionysus, and the Romans named that god Bacchus. Uh, And there's a term, it's Bacchanalian, 
And that came to mean something which is characterized or given by, by given to drunken revelry, as in a bacchanalian orgy. These are the things that Paul is speaking. Paul says, you know, avoid these things if you read his letters. The pagans all around the Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians, were singing their songs to each other and to their pagan gods. This was a common practice, right? At their, at their feasts, they would have these bacchanalian, these licentious songs that they would sing um, to their gods. So Paul doesn't say don't sing to these Ephesian Christians. Instead, he says to them, instead of singing those songs, right, those bacchanalian, those debauched, sinful songs to false gods, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, right, to the Lord with, with thankfulness, with all your heart and with thankfulness. So that's the contrast that Paul gives to, to these Ephesian Christians. Again, this, this paranesis, this instruction, moral instruction, sing these songs, not, not these ones. So now there's two general ways that um, this phrase that Paul uses, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, can be understood. And again, I don't have time to go too much into this. I want to introduce it. The first way is that Paul is simply directly referring to the book of Psalms with all three references. All right. The second way to understand it is, is that he's including uninspired songs or songs that were written by men not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, as we'll see later, we'll get to a little bit in church history. Calvin, uh, John Calvin generally adopted the, the first view that, you know, these are, these are the Psalms and uh, he adopted that in practice for the most part. But even Calvin wrote, he said, what may be the exact difference between psalms and hymns, or between hymns and songs, is not easy to determine. So even Calvin admitted that. And even the English Puritan Matthew Poole said that the particular distinction of them is uncertain. He did say, you know, perhaps psalms refers to that was, was anciently sung with musical praise, Hymns could be contained a matter of praise only, and spiritual songs uh, were various matter, doctrine, prophetical, or historical. So there's a lot there. I can't get into the, the details of that. But I will note that John Gill, who was a Reformed Baptist of the 18th century, um, he seemed to see a particular focus on the book of Psalms in Paul's language here. But he also believed that uninspired hymns and spiritual songs, if consistent with Scripture ought to be sung by Christians as well. And I'll touch on this a little bit later when we get into church history, just briefly. But the main point I want you to think about here is that the Apostle Paul contrasts the spirit-filled Christian with the unbeliever in terms of the songs they sing and in the spirit in which they sing them. Right? Sing godly songs to the Lord with your heart. Okay, that's Paul's instruction to the Ephesian Christians. This is not to be a mere formal exercise, right? Christians are not to merely flatter God with their lips. They're to sing with thankfulness in their hearts, like Paul says in Colossians 3. And we really do have a reason to sing as Christians. And that's something that, you know, we ought not to, to overlook. No matter how talented we are at singing, right? We've been redeemed from sin. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness, uh, our sins have been forgiven. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been brought into fellowship with the triune God of the universe. Right? If you can't sing about that, then you don't have a pulse. Right? It doesn't matter how good you are. It's something to be joyful about. What did James say? He says, if anyone's cheerful, let him sing praise. Right? So the gospel is a wonderful reason for us to be joyful. And uh, we indeed have a reason to sing. Um, so the, the general charge is clear here. Singing is one of those things that is to characterize our fellowship as Christians, right? Addressing one another. And I'll talk more about that, that in a minute. But the context here is Christians addressing one another, singing to one another, um, to encourage and edify one another. This is to be something that characterizes our fellowship. It's a necessity for our fellowship. Moving on to number two, unless anybody wants to stop me, um, we're going to talk about its history, the singing's history, all right, specifically in church history, and obviously I can't give the whole history of singing here, but let me give an overview. All right, and what I want to do to start this overview is to, uh, to start with the Reformation and then kind of go back a little bit. So the practice of Christians singing together, right, singing together when they gather together uh, was largely lost uh, with the Roman Catholic Church. So when Martin Luther uh, was in the Roman Catholic Church and was just about to leave it, 
the church services did not contain congregational singing. Christians would not be singing together. Uh, if singing did occur, it was by a select group of monks, all right, specially trained monks, and they sang in Latin. So most of the people didn't even understand what they were singing, just like they didn't understand what they were teaching or reading from Scripture. The idea that Christians uh, would be singing to one another, singing together to one another and to the Lord, uh, congregational singing was not acceptable for the most part in the Roman Catholic Church. So Martin Luther, however, that was one of the, the main things that he's remembered for in addition to justification by faith and, and translating the Bible for the common people, was that he wanted to return to the, what he believed was the biblical and historical pattern. Christians gathering together, and among other things, singing. Singing, just like Paul instructs the Ephesian Christians to. Now, interestingly, the Reformers were not uniform on this. Uh, Luther, he accepted congregational singing of both psalms and also hymns written by men. You know, his most famous hymn is, The Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, and he also did approve of musical instruments, though his, his main focus was on the voices of the saints. Calvin, um, he accepted congregational singing, for the most part, as I understand it, only voices, and for the most part, only the psalms and some por other portions of scripture. So he didn't um, include non-inspired hymns and songs written, written by men outside of the Bible. Yes, sir. Now, he would have had biblical convictions for those views, not necessarily just a tradition that was started by, right. his, by his people, right? Okay. Yeah, and all, all, all three of these, and I'll get to Zwingli's, had biblical arguments, and that's what um, I have more on that, if you're interested, and, and I certainly love to talk about that. I was just not, unable to get into the debate fully here. I just kind of want to introduce it. But Zwingli, he did not accept congregational singing at all. He said there will be no singing, congregational singing in the church. And while that may seem strange, right, uh, Zwingli was not alone. In fact, there was a significant debate uh, among Reformed Baptists. Just a few years after the London Baptist Confession of Faith was approved in 1689, there was a man named Benjamin Keach, who uh, a lot of Reformed Baptists will know him. He's, he had a catechism, and he's kind of a well-known figure in Reformed Baptist history. He debated a man uh, named Isaac Marlowe, all right? And Marlowe, just like Zwingli, argued that there should be no congregational singing. All right, And Benjamin Keach argued there should be. I had like an hour to talk about that whole thing, and I had to scrap all that. So <laughs> I couldn't get into it. But if you want to talk more about that, let me know, and I should have something online soon. But um, they wrote voluminously on this topic, especially Marlowe. Right? And um, so I'll comment on how that debate turned out in a minute. But let me go back a little bit before I, I come back to that. All right, so let's go back further, all right? The first thing I want to point out is that singing could properly be understood uh, or considered part of what is called natural religion. And this was actually a point of contention between Benjamin Keach and Isaac Marlowe about whether or not Christians should be singing uh, when they gather together. Natural religion. Um, the idea here is that God created man in his image, and man is therefore inclined to do certain things in relation to his creator. So one clear example of this is prayer. The inclination to pray is not limited to Christians. Um, think about this, this story of Jonah. It, Jonah goes on the ship. He's, he's fleeing from God. He's supposed to go to Nineveh. And he, he, he's fleeing on the ship. And then the storm comes. And what are the pagan sailors doing? They're praying to their gods, right? There's this natural inclination in man to pray. The pagan sailors, it says, each cried out to his God for deliverance from the storm. So we look around, we see that Mormons pray, Muslims pray, Hindus pray, Buddhists pray. It's a natural inclination of man to pray to the, the divine. The, the difference between Christians and non-Christians isn't that one prays and another doesn't. The difference is that one prays to the true God through Christ, and the others pray to false gods. Now, it's the same with, with singing, according to this argument, that mm -hmm. the difference between Christians and non-Christians isn't that one group sings and another group doesn't. Right? You see, God didn't need to tell people to sing to their gods. Right? Throughout human history, singing has been the natural response 
to what I would say is the, 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 the natural understanding we have that there is a God uh, over us. Now, we, we twist that and pervert who that God is, and that's why we need the gospel to correct that understanding. But humans have always sang to their gods throughout history. Plutarch, who uh, lived during the time of the Apostle Paul, he attested to this fact. He said, the whole science of music was employed by the ancient Greeks in the worship of their gods. So the ancient Greeks would, would sing and, and praise their false gods. And John Gill he also concluded that the Gentiles were by the light of nature directed and by the law of nature obliged to this part of worship, and consequently that it is a part of natural religion. All right, again, we, have, we can get more into that, but I just want to introduce some things here. I'm thinking about Genesis 4, where it says, At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So given humanity's natural propensity to prayer and song, my thinking is that this calling upon the name of the Lord was likely expressed in both prayer and potentially song. It's a natural inclination of man to respond to the divine with prayer and song. So let's move on now to the time of Moses. All right? Before Moses even receives the law, he leads the people across the Red Sea, and right when they cross the Red Sea, what do they do? They sing a song, right? Exodus 15, verse 1 starts it off. It says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, the thing that uh, John Gill notes about this is that when the Israelites sang the song, they didn't do it because they were necessarily commanded to. God commanded them to sing the song, but they sang, he says, according to the dictates of their conscience. It's this natural response for mankind to pray when he's in distress and to sing praises when he's delivered. Now, of course, when God reveals himself through the law and the prophets, we have the book of Psalms given to the people of God, and they contain songs that were sung at specific feasts, festivals, and other occasions of worship at the temple. But they were also sung by the Jews in their homes, in their communities, as they were walking on the way. You see, the Psalms provided a songbook for all of life, for all the people of God. And I will come back and make some comments on the Psalms in a moment. But I just want to move on now to the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. So by the time Jesus' incarnation, uh, the songs are still an important part of Jewish culture. All right? Jesus attended services in the synagogue weekly. You see, the Jews couldn't travel every week to the temple, especially those that live far away. They wouldn't go every single week to the temple. Now, and even though the synagogue service was not specifically laid out in the law like the temple worship was, Jesus still attended that service weekly. Look at Luke 4. He says this was his custom every week to gather with his fellow Jews in the synagogue. And a service in the synagogue generally went like this. Psalms were sung, scripture was read, a sermon was preached, and then a time of discussion followed. All right? So Jesus would have been singing those psalms in the synagogue services. But he also sang songs outside the synagogue service. For example, after the Passover, as was custom, we know that Jesus and his disciples would have sung the Halal, which from, comes from Psalm 115 to 118, all right, in Matthew 26. They sing a hymn together. They sing a psalm. And, of course, Paul and Silas, when they're in prison, they're praying and singing hymns to God. All right, so singing is, was part of the people of God's experience from the beginning from before God specifically gave the law in the book of Psalms, and then afterward in various contexts. Singing is a rich part of our heritage. Now, once Christianity began to spread, still on this, this history point, and the, the Jews who believed in Christ are eventually kicked out of the synagogues, right? They, a lot of the first mass conversions is Jews, right? Jews are converted to, they, they believe that Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, and for a time, they continue in the synagogues. But eventually, they're kicked out of the synagogues, and they began meeting largely in homes or other places where they can gather. And it seems that in their homes, uh, they lar their, the structure largely mirrored that of the synagogue service. And that makes sense to me for two reasons. One, as I mentioned previously, the Jews that lived far away couldn't content attend the temple uh, weekly, and the synagogues, however, occurred every week. So this was their pattern that they continued. They would meet every week and more than that. But number two, the temple, uh, the temple service centered, the whole temple system centered on the sacrificial system, on 
this idea that we need to give these sacrifices of animals um, according to as God has directed. And that was true, but Jesus brought that to an end. Jesus is the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God that was slain. So there's no longer a need for these sacrifices, which was a huge, you know, break for the Jews. And they're thinking, but the temple is coming. It was coming to a close, and then uh, and then it's destroyed in 70 A.D. But so the Christians, uh, they're modeling, in my understanding, these meetings more after the synagogue services. So the Christians became known then for gathering together, breaking bread, teaching about Christ, and singing hymns. And many of these hymns are believed to have been preserved in the New Testament. For example, 1 Timothy 3.16, where he was manifested in the flesh and taken up. That's, that's understood to be a hymn from the first century. Pliny the Younger. All right, Pliny lived during the first and second centuries in the Roman Empire. He wrote to uh, the emperor Trajan, and he said this, The Christians met together on a stated day before it was light and sung a song among themselves to Christ as to God. Right, so this was his understanding of what Christians do when they get together. Pliny the Younger was not a Christian, but this he understood this is what Christians are doing. And then Tertullian, in the 3rd century, he spoke of four things that were central to the gathering of Christians. Reading the scriptures, preaching, prayer, and singing psalms. All right, so those are the four things that Tertullian uh, recognized when he saw Christians gather. So it seems clear that Christians were following Paul's exhortation to sing godly songs amongst themselves, edifying one another with the truth of what they sang. So what happened then by the time we get to the Reformation? Why did the Roman Catholic Church remove this practice of Christians singing together? Well, I don't have time to get into all that, and I wasn't even able to research it too, too much. But I will say this. One of the worst things that the errors of popery or Roman Catholicism led uh, the true church into was this idea of this great gulf between the, the clergy and the laity, right? Between the religious elite over here and the common people over here, right? It's, that's the pharisaical system 2.0, as I look at it. I mean, in, in, in first century uh, Israel, in Jesus' time, I mean, you, if you, the Pharisees believed they had the, the monopoly on the truth, they were the dispensers of the truth, and if you didn't go through their systems, like Paul did go through their systems, but if you didn't, how did they view Peter and John? You, you're uneducated peasant man there's no way you could possibly teach the people from the law and prophets right they viewed themselves as this elite group and that's the same thing that happened uh with the roman catholic church and popery the elite right the elite people yes i just want to ask you when you did your research did you see anything about because they uh, was raised catholic and we did sing when, when that came back Mm-mm. i was thinking about that and i said i'm sure it's it's changed over the years yeah. definitely yeah I don't know. Yeah. yeah, that's a good question. Certainly the Roman Catholic Church has changed. I mean, I haven't been to Mass in a long time, but I don't think it's only in Latin anymore either. Yeah. Yeah. So they did. So, so, but at the time it was. Um, and at the time, the singing did not occur. Uh, it was only an elite group. So, um, so the, elite, the elite people, right, the, the religious elite, they can read the Bible. The common people can't. And that was what Luther went up against in the Reformation. Right, the, the religious elite, they can understand the doctrine, but the common people can't. You can't read the Bible for yourself. Um, the elite right, can sing praises when the church gathers, but the common people can't. All right? So that was one of the worst things as I think about the, just the Roman Catholicism and, and obviously the abandoning of the, of the gospel and justification by faith, of course, is the most important uh, error. But that's just such a practical uh, understand error that has that really devastated the church, I believe. And a break from that was one of the most freeing aspects of the Reformation. And it didn't only lead to changes in ecclesiology, but also political structures as well. I mean, the idea that you have to unquestionably uh, obey the religious superior or the civil superior was really turned on its head in the Reformation, which led to this idea that there's no divine rights of king. A king is responsible to God's law. And therefore, the people can look to God's law and see if the king is following it. And that it gives, putting it in one sense, power back to the people that you're not in bondage to this elite over you, whether it's religious elite or civil elite. 
Um, and, and, and a lot of that led to, to uh, you know, just the, the end of kind of the monarchy system that was prevalent at the time. But that's another discussion. So we know that Luther's influence was key in bringing back congregational singing. And as far as that Reformed Baptist debate went, uh, it seems that Keech's arguments won the day. Uh, he argued for congregational singing. Now, when the Reformed Baptists in America were seeking to adopt a modified version of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, they actually added two sections in what's known as the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. I think that's 1742. One section is about laying on of hands. The other section was about singing. And part of that section reads like this. It being enjoined on the churches of Christ to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that the whole church and their public assemblies, as well as private Christians, ought to sing God's praises according to the best light they have received. So the Reformed Baptists, it was a, it was a, it was a big debate. And again, we could talk about the arguments made. I mean, Marlowe had six, seven, eight arguments why, from Scripture, he believed there shouldn't be congregational singing. I don't agree with all his conclusions, but it's a very uh, interesting debate they had. But the Reformed Baptists ended up adopting uh, congregational singing. Now, one of my, to close this section up, one of my favorite stories about Christians singing together is from 1736. And it concerns the Moravians. And the Moravians were largely influenced by John Huss. And actually, Huss was before Luther. And, and even before Luther, John Huss argued for congregational singing. Right? In that same Roman Catholic system, he said, we need, to, we need to be singing together. So John Wesley, then, he's on board this ship bound for America. And John Wesley, I mean, he was as religious as they got, but he had no peace. He had no assurance of his interest in Christ. His religion was really a Christless religion, uh, definitely at this point. So he's on the ship, John Wesley with these other Englishmen, and there's this group of Moravian Christians. Right? And, and this is what Wesley writes in his journal. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, so these Moravians are gathering together, they're singing together, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks, as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans, the Moravians, calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, Were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, But were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. So the Moravians, like Paul and Silas before them, like Christians gathering in the Roman catacombs, like, person, like uh, persecuted Christian families today singing together in their homes, the Moravians were addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, edifying one another with what they sang. And they had a peace that Wesley knew nothing of. Right? And may it be the same with us. Let us not forget you know, th this rich history of singing and how singing has this most practical uh, way of exhor exhorting us, right? And it was lost for centuries due to the bondage of popery. And thank God it, that it was brought back mm -hmm. because it's a wonderful encouragement um, to, for us to sing one to another. So there's so much more there. If you want to talk more about that, let me know. Um, I find that the looking at church history with any doctrine is fascinating because you get to see the arguments and, and different things and where people were coming from. And it was very thought out uh, on, on all three of those positions, and there's even you know nuances among that. Any questions before I move on to point three and four? All right, yes. Let's look at number three, uh, singing's didactic nature. 
All right, the term didactic, it has refers to being adapted to teach. That's preceptive. It contains doctrines, precepts, principles, rules, intended to instruct. All right, now Christian singing, I believe, it's to varying degrees, but in some sense always is to be didactic. It's to be didactic. It is to contain doctrine. It's to contain truth. Now when Luther sought to bring back congregational singing, he wanted the songs to contain words that were rich, in theological truth, not merely personal experience, expressions. So consider this point from the text, right? Ephesians 5.19. Now, Paul lists three, potentially four things, depending on how you combine them, that flows from being filled with the Spirit. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And if we tack on singing there, we could put that as one. Or you can make it to singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I kind of put those together. All right. So he says, addressing one another in these songs, singing and making melody. Two, giving thanks, always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And three, submitting to one another. So there's at least three main categories that Paul says being filled with the Spirit results in these things. So I want you to note the first thing that Paul mentions in verse 19 is speaking or addressing one another. Some translations say speaking to one another. If you have the New King James, it might say speaking. I know the uh, King James Version does. Speaking to one another, or addressing one another. Words, right? Words are important. The words we use are important. The Apostle Paul said he'd rather say five words that edify, that build up, than 10,000 words that don't, that people can't understand. So the word addressing here is sometimes translated speaking in other portions. For example, in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas uh, are talking to the Philippian jailer, it says, and they spoke the word, right? They addressed the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So it's interesting if you think about it, the way that Paul words it. He said, you know, why, why, did, why not simply, why didn't Paul just say singing to one another? You know, just sing to one another. He says addressing or speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the result of being continually filled with the Spirit or carried along with the, the Spirit in the first place is an intelligible use of words among Christians, an intelligible addressing of one another even in song. I, I think about this concept of, of words and the, concepts, uh, the concept of truth for a moment. You know, Paul refers to the gospel as the word of truth. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth, John 16. Truth is communicated with words. Right? Truth is communicated with words. When Paul was in, in words, people value words. Right? When Paul was in prison, why would he want above all other things the parchments? Right? Bring my cloak, bring this, but above all else, bring the parchments. He wanted to read the words. Why would saints living in England under the reign of Bloody Mary give up their lives in order to read words in their own language? Right? Why do Christians, even today, risk their lives to study the words of the Bible? Are they, are they just mere words? No, we know it's much more than that. We know every word of God proves true. He's a shield unto them who put their trust in Him. Words have meaning, and words are powerful. You know, earlier in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul said that we should speak the truth with our neighbors, right? And at the end of chapter 4, he said that no corrupting talk should come out of our mouths, but only that which is edifying. And Jesus said that men will give an account for every careless word that he speaks. Man will give an account for every careless word he speaks. And I'd say that would include every careless word he sings. We often overlook the importance that God places on words, and we ought, we ought not to do that. God has a very high of regard for words. Now, John Gill defines singing in the simplest definition as simply speaking melodiously, musically, or with the modulation of the voice. His point was that you don't distinguish speaking from singing by what is said, but how it is said. Right? I can speak the truth to you. I can sing the truth to you. I can speak falsehoods to you. I can sing falsehoods to you. Alright? So, that's why it's so important that we think about the words we say and the words we sing. All right, now what ought Christians to sing? Again, I can't get into the debate and biblical arguments today for 
ought we sing the Psalms only, this, that, and what the arguments were. There's much to, do, to con consider with that. I just can't do it today. But Gill said this. He said, I deny not, but that such hymns and spiritual songs composed by good men, uninspired, may be made use of. Okay, We can sing the Psalms and other hymns, provided, he says, provided care is taken that they may be agreeable to the sacred writings and to the analogy of faith, which is comparing scripture with scripture, make sure we're not, we're not contradicting ourselves with what we say, and are expressed as much as may be in scripture language. So Gil was concerned that the words leaving the mouths of Christians, whether spoken or sung, were consistent with scripture. Right? If, we're going, if, if singing is to, to teach truth, which it is, then the, the words have to be consistent with scripture. He wanted to use as much scripture language as possible. And are there not, if we're honest, many hymns or songs today that would fail to meet Gill's qualifications? Charles Spurgeon once said that in looking over, uh, casting his eyes over all the modern writings, uh, just, you know, men writing about, you know, Christianity or Jesus, he said, in, in casting my eyes on these writings, he felt as if he were about to die from breathing poisonous gas. Just how bad all the writings were that he was reading. I believe the same could be said about many songs um, that are used in American churches today. Yeah. And, and what a shame that is because songs ought to be used as forms of exhortation, encouragement, and instruction. In a word, edification. All right, and though I, I tend to agree with Luther uh, that Christians can sing songs other than the Psalms, there will never be a better songbook than the book of Psalms. Right. Uh, the one inspired by the Holy Spirit. The book of Psalms show us so clearly how, didact how didactic, right? how instructive yeah. singing can and should be among Christians. And let me just mention uh, one, a couple ways here that singing is, di is didactic by considering singing the Psalms. Okay? Singing the Psalms requires us to make sure our understanding of God and His world is accurate. Singing the Psalms together remind us that God judges the wicked. Psalm 75, right? That's the truth. We need to be instructed, encouraged on. God judges the wicked. Psalm 75. Singing the Psalms together teaches us that God's heart is to help the needy and the oppressed. Psalm 10. Singing the Psalms together encourages us with the truth that Christ reigns over all nations. Psalm 2. One of my favorites. Singing the Psalms together instructs us about how God deals with the nations according to His law. Psalm 919. Singing the Psalms together exhorts us to speak out for those being mistreated and oppressed. Verse 12 of Psalm 10. Singing the Psalms together calls to our mind the reality that persecution is inevitable in the Christian life. And some of our brothers and sisters around the world today are even suffering greatly. Psalm 119, verse 51. You see, and that's just a sample, and you see how didactic the Psalms are. They teach so many points, so many doctrines, so many uh, concepts uh, of the Christian worldview and the biblical worldview. And even an unbeliever listening to such songs would be challenged to count the cost of following Christ. This is what the Christian religion is about. It's not all fluff and, and, and just, you know, how I feel, it's, there, there's content, there's, there's good, there's evil, there's persecution, um, there's oppression, but God is, is sovereign and with the, the believer through it all. But the Psalms teach these things, these doctrines. And unfortunately, and again, I'm not trying to be condescending, a lot of modern you know, worship music, and probably old music too, it's not just modern music, um, is, is really just you know, so sterile and insipid, and it, it, it just focuses on one part of the Christian experience. You know, oh, how I feel, and, and, and I'm not saying there's not a place for expressing um, our trust and, or our anguish to God, but the Psalms, and like Luther believed, songs like them, that was his whole point. If we're going to write new songs, they better be along the lines of the Psalms as far as the doctrine and, and the way that they teach us. Those types of songs help us to sing rich truths that touch on all of Christian experience. So if we're going to sing songs together, let's make sure they're precise, they're rich in theological truth, and they're fitting for us to sing together, memorize together, and edify one another with. Mm -hmm. yes. If I need to speak on the edifying one another, when I was reading this verse um, years ago, and I was being taught um, 
I was receiving better teaching than I had previously. Um, when I was a teenager, we had dim lights, and worship was kind of centered on your private experience with God. And I think when we read passages like this, it just makes it so clear that we're to engage in this congregationally, that addressing one another should... I heard one pastor talk about how he makes sure that he's looking around at his congregation as he's singing. Mm -hmm. And that was really encouraging for me because I, we had just grown up um, in this environment where worship is a private thing between you and God, even in the midst of the congregation. Let's create an atmosphere that is as um, basically centered on you and what you're feeling and experiencing um, rather than you know corporately singing together um, and edifying one another. I think that that mindset change is huge for Christians when you grow up in this, especially a charismatic background. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll touch on that a little bit with point four, exactly that point. <clears throat> All right, so that's point three. All right, the didactic nature of singing. All right, it it does teach something, right? And as Christians, we're to be concerned that it, it teaches as much as possible um, and is faithful to Scripture. That's the key thing, faithful to Scripture. All right, final point here. Singing's teleo teleology, all right? Now, I do want to make some points of application here uh, regarding how we, we think about singing as the gathered church and kind of some of the points AJ just made. And I can only scratch the surface again here. There's so much more that I had to cut out of this. So I want to make a teleological statement. Teleology refers to the, relates to the purpose for which something exists, all right? Uh, as opposed to the cause by which it arises. So what's the purpose for our singing together? Why do we do it? And you started to, you hinted at that, or you basically kind of said exactly why. And I'm not saying it's the only purpose, but it's the one I want to focus on right now, and I think it's the one that is often neglected. So this is the, the teleological statement, the purpose for singing. Christians gather together, first of all, for the purpose of edifying or building up the body. Therefore, Christians singing together is for the purpose of edifying or building up the body. Okay? Now, I personally agree with uh, David Peterson, who says that in the New Testament, worship is all of life, while the vocal purpose of the time when the church gathers and sings, prays and hears the word, is edification. Edification. Now, the passage in the Bible which... I understand it provides the most clear and explicit instruction for how the New Testament congregation is, is to operate when it gathers together is in 1 Corinthians 11-14. through 14. And Paul gives two main precepts. He says, first and foremost, all things should be done for edification. All things, that's uh, 14, 5, 12, and 26 of 1 Corinthians 14. All things should be done for edification. And number two, all things should be done decently and in order in verse 40. So, Paul gives this, these, these, this is the, 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 the purpose when you gather together, let everything be done for edification, for building up one another. God commands us to not neglect meeting together as Christians. Right? Why? The reason I believe is because we are to edify one another, encourage one another, and stir one another up. Now, I should be living every moment, Coram Deo, right, before the face of God. I should be acknowledging His Lordship, worshiping Him with everything I do. But when I have the opportunity to gather with my brothers and sisters in Christ, it's a time of edification that I could not have without you. I can't have edification without other believers. Alright? I, I can't have this time where we edify one another if I'm on my own. I could worship God, but I can't be edified by you. Now, I want to kind of just make a point of application here and mention a, a pet peeve of mine that I have and uh, might step on some toes, but something for you to think about, all right? Um, as I was researching this, one of the articles I found, and a writer said that complaining about music is almost a universal phenomenon in churches today. Uh, a lot of complaining about music. And so this is what I believe. I do not believe that a saint should ever leave a church because of the musical quality in the services. When you, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, so when you when you gather with the saints, 
you're not gathering in order in order to hear great music. You may, but that's not why you're gathering. You're meeting in order to edify and encourage one another. And singing is part of that, absolutely, but not in the consumerist sense. Oh, how good is this music to my taste? You know, Luther, I believe, in accord with Paul's words here in Ephesians 5.19, he wanted the church to sing together rather than a choir of trained professionals. Rather than keep this elite uh, and common distinction, he sought to have all sing. And as such, he did want, he wanted, he said every child should have a basic musical education. And in fact, as congregational singing rose to the surface in, in Germany under, uh, with Luther's leadership, teachers, they were called cantors, they helped provide vocal training to the congregation as a whole. Um, and, and nevertheless, though, as far as judging the quality of the music, if we're going to say, well, how good was the music? It was certainly a step down from the Latin clerical choirs before them, right? Those were trained monks, that was what they did. But it didn't matter to Luther. It was more important that all the saints would sing than that the music was the greatest quality it could possibly be when the saints gathered together. After all, there's still a place for professional musicians, orchestras, concerts, whatever, outside the local gathering of the church. Um, in fact, actually the momentum of the Reformation and bringing back singing to the people really led to some of the greatest musical creations in history. I mean, think of Handel's Messiah, um, you know, beautiful music. But, so, you might say, well... What about preaching, Chris? You know, you would never say, you would never speak this way about preaching. You must not really enjoy music that much to place such little emphasis on it. You know, it's totally legitimate, legitimate to select a church based on how good the music is. Well, first of all, I'd say I do enjoy music, and I can recognize the difference between, you know, me singing with my family and Andrea Bocelli, you know, singing. So I, I know it's not that I don't appreciate good music. But secondly, I actually don't believe you should leave a church because of preaching that is less than other preaching, right? You should only leave if the preaching is not faithful to the truths of the Bible. That's my understanding. I believe it's the same with music. We ought not to base a decision about a church by comparing the quality of music with other churches. And I may be preaching to the choir here, no pun intended, but I've heard, I've heard that statement a lot uh, in my you know, Christian life that... You know, I need to find where the music just does it for me. Now, look, I could spend an entire night reading Puritan sermons and be amazed and moved by the cohesiveness of the argument, the logic of the conclusions, and, you know, the deft use of imagery. And it would be easy for me to compare Pastor Dave's preaching with what I consider and what may in fact be better preaching, right? But I'm not gathering with the church in order to hear the greatest preaching I can. After all, I can read Jonathan Edwards' anytime I want, right? I can access, you know, professional music whenever I want. And Pastor Dave, I believe, is humble enough to appreciate this because I know I'd want the same thing if I were in his shoes. Is one of the worst things you can do is, is judge your pastor by comparing him to either the greatest preachers that have ever lived or other, pa- other preachers that are around today. Um, that's really bad for, you know, one, for him and also for us, just what we, how we view that. So, I gather together with the body to edify others and be edified by them. Right? I gather to hear a specific part of God's word preached imperfectly by a man who knows me, right? my pastor. Uh, the church, in whatever context is best, whether it's after the, the service or in our homes afterward, then ought to discuss the word together yeah. right? and, and, and build upon it. And, and many church services, just kind of combining both this idea of music and preaching, have to really become a performance where people merely spectate, you know. And that's not the way it ought to be. I like the Puritans, the principle they had here, that they viewed it differently. They, they discussed and built upon the sermon after, not taking it as a finished product, but as a launching point for them to dig deeper into the Word. It wasn't this performance where the pastor has to you know, give this excellent performance that you spectate and enjoy and then leave. The key here is that, when, is that we need to understand when we gather, why we gather as a church. Why do we gather as a church? It's not in order to hear great music. It's not in order to hear great preaching. It's not in order to hear uh, great prayers. Right? Singing, preaching, and praying will occur when we meet. But we don't meet in order to get the best product of that we can. We meet to edify our brothers and sisters and be edified by them. Mm-hmm. And if we think we aren't being edified because the music isn't as good as the church down the road, then I think we... Um, you know, what does that say about our belief that God equips the saints to edify one another? You know, if we make it, well, it has to be this certain quality for me 
we're kind of, I mean, neglecting the fact that your job is to edify the believers around you by singing, right? Um, no matter how, how good you can do that as well. So why are we meeting together, right? God equips us to edify one another. Again, obviously, do I think music should be ignored? No, but it should be thought about differently. Should preaching be ignored? No, but it should be thought about differently than it is sometimes today. The preacher, right, should seek to stimulate thinking and discussion and application, not simply perform and have people go on their way. Similarly, singing in the church ought not to be viewed as, as primarily a performance, but where the church sings together, right, and they can get better at it, but they're singing together, uh, edifying one another. So, again, just trying to, to spark some thought here, and, uh, you know, whenever you hear someone say, well, the, the music or, or the worship, and again, I don't necessarily like how we kind of supply it to one thing, but, you know, it's just not doing it for me. You know, the music or the worship, just not doing it for me, and i got to find somewhere else to go. You know, I think about the first century church whenever I, whenever I hear that, or I think about like a house church in China today. You know, how much emphasis would a saint, you know, in first century, you know, Rome, uh, place on the, the caliber of the music he experienced when he was gathering with the saints? Right? Can you imagine a persecuted saint, right? He risked his life to, to meet with these believers, you know, hiding uh, in his home or in these catacombs, and then, you know, he's just... He's listening to the to the they're, they're singing they're trying to be quiet and you know he's just you know you got the off, the kids singing off key and then you have the beautiful voice over here and it's just not doing it for him and he's like he's like I gotta find another church I, I I can't I can't imagine that I cannot imagine that nor can I imagine him leaving because the pastor just wasn't able to speak with the eloquence and skill of a Greek order even though he's preaching the truth what I can imagine however is a saint who goes to such a meeting even risking his life who hears words, whether spoken or sung, that do not honor his Lord. I can imagine him leaving for that. Right. You see, we've been spoiled with a wealth of choices, right? And I think it would be wrong for us to leave any church simply because of the quality in the sense of comparing it to others. I'm not talking about the truth, right, and the, the, um, the heart and the genuineness. I'm talking about quality and comparing it to others in church history or even today, right? Every aspect of our gathering, whether Sunday morning, Friday night, we have home group, or just hanging out, uh, whenever we meet, every aspect of our meeting when we gather together should be viewed in this light. How can we edify each other in our common faith? Right? According to Paul, the Apostle Paul, singing is one of those ways. Let us utilize that more and more as we gather, that we might edify and encourage one another. Now, I told you I focused mostly on verse 19. I mean, like, two, I like the preaching and I like the um, children's ministry. But I went home and I said, Lord, if this is the church for me, show me. And then I heard Pastor Dave um, play. And I felt like God used that to tell me, okay, this is your home church, you know? So I guess for me, <clears throat> God did use that, you know? I think about, honestly, I love music. If I would have been to a church where they just stand up and sing and there's no like I wouldn't feel the Holy Spirit and there's no I guess emotion and it just wouldn't be me you know so anyway, I hear what you're saying yeah I encourage you yeah. to, to think about you know what, what I said and, and give it some thought yeah. um, and again I love music too you know I can tell the difference between you know Pastor Dave singing and and you know meeting in the home church with with you know 80 year old people on the keyboard but yeah. I don't believe the Holy Spirit is any more present when you know or moving based on the quality of the music it's based on based on yeah it's based on you know the the saints encouraging one another believing um in what they're singing and, and encouraging one another but of course again like i said like the writer said there's yeah. nothing more this is a controversial to it's, it's it's really a visceral topic for for a lot of people and um hopefully we can stimulate more thinking and talking about this one more thing real quick before i wrap up Encouragement and so 
what you shared was a unique specific thing yeah. that you cried out to God for something and he confirmed something for you. Yeah. It's not, I think it's two yeah. totally different applications. Yeah, but I also yeah. wanted to share like, you know, that God could still use that too as an example. Yeah, but I don't believe that he was saying he, God can't use it. He's just saying that when someone's heart is um, I mean, I think we have an intimacy group. Like, we've wanted to leave this church like seven times. <laughs> right? <laughs> we have. I mean, we have. But we don't want to leave for the wrong reasons. <laughs> right? We don't want to leave for the wrong reasons. We want to, you know, and um, praise God we did leave because that's what this body of believers does. It edifies and encourages and makes real conversations like this. Amen. So we don't want to take up any more of your time, but I just wanted to just, like, you know, I mean, praise God we didn't leave for all the wrong reasons. But we experienced probably a lot of what Chris is saying here where we seem to believe for, for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And I encourage us to continue the conversation, right, uh, about this, about any topic we talk about. If you want to talk to me more about it, uh, let me know. Come over to our house next Sunday night. If you want to you know, talk amongst yourselves about um, these concepts, um, I, I believe there's things to consider here. And I believe also it's, it's thinking outside the box for a lot of people in, in this way. It's not what we're used to. We're used to a certain way of viewing um, church services and things like that. Let me make one quick comment, and then I want to end with something. But... Um, I focused on verse 19. Let me just make a couple comments on 20 and 21, very brief. Um, and then Brother uh, Mark is actually going to pick it up for us the next two weeks. I'm talking about um, why, wives and husbands. The only thing I want to mention with giving thanks is that have you ever thought about how giving thanks is also a means of edification? Mm-hmm. Right? Continuing this theme. That's what the Apostle Paul believed it in 1 Corinthians 14, 16. He says, if you give thanks with your spirit, and I can't get into all of his meaning here, but he says, if you're just doing it and people can't understand what you're saying, how can anyone in the position of an outsider or without the ability to understand what you're saying say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but here's the key. The other is not being built up, not being edified. That's the key again with singing, with giving thanks to build up others. Right? God doesn't you know, need to hear our thanks, though he, he wants to, but we need to be edified by it. Um, that ought to be our concern as well, just like it was Paul's. Being filled with the Spirit leads to a thankful Christian, and giving thanks among one another builds up the body. Right? Your giving thanks encourages me, how God has been good to you, and how I have to give thanks to God, even rejoicing with you. Right? Your thanksgiving helps me see that you're giving God his proper due. All right, giving thanks ought to be a regular part of our discourse as Christians, whether it's singing or just talking. And I've been guilty of not giving thanks as much as I should. And finally, the, being filled with the Spirit leads to relational harmony, submitting one to another. But I'll leave that um, for Brother Mark next week because he's going to be talking about that specifically as it applies to wives and husbands. So we open with prayer. I want uh, you to turn in your Bible to Psalm 119, verse 55. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to close um, by singing. It will be more fitting than to close by singing Psalm 119, verse 55 um, through verse 56. Uh, So Pastor Dave will start us off when he's ready.
Amen. Thank you for your kind attention. And uh, let, me, let me close with prayer quick. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the word that we can sing. We pray that uh, you would uh, cause our hearts to be overflowing with thanksgiving and joy to you because of the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.